you so much. Uh, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're continuing a series of sermons in uh, this first letter of Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3. And again, that's what we do here at North Point. We, for the most part, work our way through books of the Bible, and we're doing that now through uh, 1 Peter. And we are to the end of chapter 3. And our text this morning is from verses 18 through 22 of 1 Peter chapter 3. And this is God's word. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. In which also we went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who were once disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were safe, brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God. For a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. It's God's word. Let's pray. Father, again, we ask for your blessing and for your help as we turn to this portion of your word. Father, we, we long for these times because we know that it is through your word that you bring your people to faith and it's through your word you build your people up in faith. And we pray that would happen even now, that the Holy Spirit would be working in our hearts, enabling us to, to see the truth of your word, to hear its message and to receive its truth. And Father, I pray for grace for myself that I might lead your people into the truth today. Because we know the truth is found in Jesus, and that's where we want to be. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, how many of you can remember the last time you heard a sermon from this text? How many of you can think you've ever heard a sermon from this text? You know, these verses are universally described as some of the most difficult in the New Testament to interpret. And so it's not one of those texts that a pastor usually decides to preach on if he's just choosing texts at random. But if you're going through a book of the Bible like we are now and you skip over it, it's just kind of obvious. Now, I could have assigned it to Gavin, but Gavin's not here today. <laughs> so I guess I'll just have to take it on myself. What I don't want us to do is lose sight of the forest for the trees. That is, I don't want us to get so consumed in the difficulties in this passage that we miss the main point of what this passage teaches. As always, we need to keep the text in its context. If you heard me say that once, you've heard me say it a hundred times. We must always keep a text in its context. You see, these verses are not just added as an addendum to chapter 3. Well, you know yourselves that when Peter wrote this, he didn't divide it up into chapters 
in verses. That was done later, so it would be easy for us to find our way around in the Bible. Now, this is a continuous letter that, that Peter wrote. It, so what we need to do is find how this text fits into Peter's train of thought as he writes this letter so many years ago. Now, remember the overall context of this letter is how believers are to hold on to their faith and to bear a witness for Christ even in the face of opposition and persecution. This letter was written to, to believers who were in that circumstance, who were being persecuted for their faith. Look with me again back at chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Where Peter said this, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that, verse 7, the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though, he says, tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor through revelation of Jesus Christ. And then if you look in chapter 2 and verse 12, we've been over these verses before, where he talks about believers being slandered as evildoers. And then in verse 17, that's not right. Verse 20, he talks about them being harshly treated. And then in verse 21, he talks about us being having been called for this purpose of suffering. And that Christ is the example that we're to follow when we suffer for our faith. And then if you look down to chapter 3 and verse 9, he said we're not to return evil for evil or insult for insult. Insinuating that we do receive evil sometimes. We are insulted because of our faith on occasion. And then if you remember our text last uh, week from uh, verses uh, uh, 16 and 17, he talked about believers being slandered, suffering for doing what is right and suffering uh, for righteousness. Then if you look over into chapter 4, the very next uh, verses, he talks again about the suffering of Jesus. Christ suffered in the flesh. And that we arm ourselves for the same purpose, the purpose of suffering. And, and Carrie mentioned in uh, Sunday school this morning, if you go down to, to verse 12 for the sake of time, I won't look at it in depth, but that's a whole section that talks about the suffering of Christians and how Christians are to hold to their faith and to bear a strong witness for Christ when they suffer for their faith. And so... I say all that to say this. What we find here at the end of chapter 3 must fit into that context of this whole matter of how you and I deal with hard times where people may question our faith, ridicule us for our faith, persecute us for our faith. Now if you peel this text kind of down to its core, what I think you find at the center is the assurance of the salvation we have in Christ. That's why I've given my sermon this morning the title of a song that we sing often here, contemporary hymn, In Christ Alone. 
since that seems to be the focus of the text, that also will be the focus of my sermon this morning. Three things from this text. First, we see in this text that Christ suffered. The specific suffering that is mentioned in verse 17 is that Christ died for our sins. Now, some of you in your translations, uh, the translation uses the word suffered. Christ suffered uh, for us. Other texts like mine use the word died. He died for our sins. Now, again, we have to keep in mind that in the whole flow of this book, uh, the focus is upon the suffering of Jesus and how his suffering is, is an example for us to follow. There are two things there. One is we find encouragement in the fact that Christ suffered also. And in him we find an example to follow when we suffer. The other thing is we find assurance from our understanding that Christ's suffering was not because of himself or for himself, but it was because of us. And for us, Christ suffered for us and on our behalf. Look with me at verse 18. I said 17 a moment ago, verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. What a great verse. Isn't that the gospel in a nutshell right there? I could, I could preach a sermon just from verse 18. In fact, I could make a five-point sermon out of verse 18. You see what all we find there? Christ died for our sins, it says. Not just for sin in general. Christ died for sins. You know, it's one thing to say that Christ died for sin. It's another thing that Christ died for, for my sin your sin and, and not just for for my sin and your sin but my sins my multiple sins my daily sins Christ died for sins he died for your sins every sin you have ever committed Christ died for it it also tells us that Jesus died the just for the unjust, or the righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus had no sin of his own. He was just and you were unjust, but he took your sin upon himself. Reminds me of 1 Corinthians 5.21, which tells us he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This verse also tells us that Christ died once for all. You know, the Jews were in the habit of bringing sacrifices over and over again. But the point of the gospel is that Christ offered himself as a sacrifice once for all. He paid the complete debt. He made full atonement. I didn't see anyone here this morning bringing a lamb or a turtle dove with you to worship. Because Jesus died once for all. This verse also tells us that Jesus died to bring us to God. Jesus reconciles us to the Father. We were estranged from Him. We were strangers to Him. We were 
his enemies, the Bible tells us. But through the death of Jesus on the cross, Jesus brings us to God. Notice that he doesn't just invite us. He brings us. Jesus died that he might bring us to the Father. And then he goes on to say that Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive in the spirit. Jesus died physically or in the flesh, but he lived spiritually or in his spirit. Now, some translations, and some of you may have them, capitalize the word spirit here. That's a judgment call in the context. You must determine it by the context. Capitalized, it refers, of course, to the Holy Spirit. Uncapitalized, as in my text, it refers to Jesus' spirit. And the Bible has a lot to say about the contrast between flesh and spirit. In my understanding, I think that's what we find here. Jesus died in the flesh. He continued to live, was made alive in the spirit. Even though he died physically, his soul spirit continued to live. But the point of verse 18 is clear. Christ died for our sins. He suffered and died for us. Then second, we find in this text that Christ made a proclamation. Now, that brings us to verses 19 and 20, which are the real head scratchers in this passage. I want you to look for a moment over to 2 Peter. Keep your finger in 1 Peter 3. Just, it's just an interesting aside here for a moment. If you go to 2 Peter 3. It's interesting that Peter's talking about the Apostle Paul and, and some of the things Paul wrote. Look at verse 16. As... Also, in all his letters, that's Paul's letters, speaking in them of these things, in which some things, in which are some things hard to understand. I'm not sure Paul wrote anything any harder to understand than what we find here in First, First Peter, uh, three. The Bible scholars and Bible commentators are all over the place in their interpretations and explanations of these verses. And there are three main directions people go in verses 19 and 20 where it talks about Jesus going and making proclamation to the spirits now in prison. One view is that between his death and his resurrection, Jesus went to Hades or the realm of the dead and preached the gospel. Another view is that by the Holy Spirit in the days of Noah, when Noah was preaching to his contemporaries, Christ was preaching through Noah to them. Third view is that between his death and resurrection, Christ didn't preach the gospel, but he made a proclamation, kind of a, a, pronouncement, a pronouncement of victory over sin and death to fallen angels in the prison where they are held. Now, there are solid, evangelical, and reformed Bible scholars and pastors and preachers who take one position over the other who clearly disagree on what this means. And after looking at about 15 sources this week, I'm convinced nobody really knows exactly 
what Peter is saying here. And it's risky, folks. It's just risky to make bold pronunciations of what a text means when you're not really sure what it means. And so I'm not going to make a bold declaration of something I'm not sure about. I'm not really sure what Peter is saying here or exactly when this took place. What I try to do, you know that, what I try to do is I try to look at the text and say, okay, what does the text say? And let's look at that. What does the text say? Well, we see that Jesus went somewhere to what the text says. Verse 18. He went. And it tells us he went in the Spirit. If you tie it with verse 18, he was made alive in the Spirit in which also he went. If you capitalize the word Spirit there, he went in the Holy Spirit. If you don't capitalize it there, he went in his Spirit. And we see that he went to proclaim something. He went and made proclamation. And those to whom he made the proclamation, we're told, are spirits who were now in prison, who were once disobedient. Now in prison, wherever that is, were once disobedient. And we're told that when they were disobedient or when the proclamation was made, however you look at the passage, was in verse 20, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. And the purpose of it, he says, the purpose of the ark, of course, was to bring a few, that is, eight persons, safely through the water. Now that's what the text says. Exactly what that text fully means is not explained. And again, to propound conjecture as though it is truth is a dangerous thing to do, and I'm just going to avoid that temptation uh, this morning. I do have a preference toward one position or the other, but uh, I'm not sure enough to proclaim it from this position of authority behind this pulpit this morning. What I do want to try to do is figure out why this is here. Why, why is this kind of odd statement in this text? And after pondering it all this week, I'm convinced that the important part is not the part that he went somewhere and made some proclamation to some spirits who are in some prison. What matters is the ark. And the reference to on the ark, the fact that eight people were safely brought through the flood. You see, that ark was their salvation. That ark saved them. And that's what the text is talking about. That's what Peter's talking about in this text. He's talking about salvation. What do we find in verse 18? Christ died for sins once for all. He's talking about salvation through the crucifixion. If you go on, we'll get there in just a moment, to verse 21, he talks about salvation through the resurrection. And it appears to me that the link between those two is the ark. 
And the point is that Peter's making an analogy, if you will, that it was the ark that saved the eight people from the flood. It's the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus that saves us. It is our ark. The cross of Christ is our ark that brings us safely through from our sins into salvation. Now, I didn't get that out of anybody's commentary. You might go home and look up ten commentaries and not find that. I just, that's just what the Lord laid on my heart after living with this text all week. Christ made proclamation somewhere to some people about the salvation that he has accomplished for us on the cross. Then third, we see in this text that Christ baptized us. Now, I could have just as well said there, Christ saved us. Because that's what verses 21 and 22 tell us. Now, there is a rather startling statement, one, another statement that preachers run from sometimes, in verse 21, where it says, Baptism now saves you. Look at again at what the text says. We find in verse 21, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. And the question you have to ask is, corresponding to what? And it's clear, it's corresponding to the ark. The fact that eight people were saved or delivered through the ark, corresponding to that, Peter says, baptism now saves you. Now, there are only a few people who believe this refers to water baptism. There are only a small minority of Christians who believe that the, that the baptism has any saving effect. We're, we're not saved by the sacrament of baptism. We're, we're saved by the death of Jesus and by the resurrection of Christ from the tomb and the application of that by the Holy Spirit. Now, the, baptism, the Bible calls that a baptism. It talks about us being baptized into Christ and baptized into his death. Our conversion is called a baptism into Christ. And that's what Peter is saying here. That baptism now saves you. He makes it clear he's not talking about water baptism. He goes on to say, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. That appeal to God for a good conscience is when we're enabled by the Holy Spirit to take the gift of salvation by faith that God has offered to us through grace. That is what saves us. We're saved by the grace of God in Christ, not by any work of man, including baptism. Our salvation is not based on anything we have done, but only on what Christ has done. And that's exactly where Peter puts the focus here. It's all on Jesus Christ in verses 21 and 22. It's on the resurrection in verse 21 and on the ascension in verse 22 where we read this. Baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. Now, I want to make clear, that is not in any way to minimize the importance 
of water baptism. But baptism is a sign of how we are saved. It is not salvation itself. If you're going down the road and you come to a sign that says Noxipater this way and you stop at that sign, you'll never get to Noxipater. And you see, that's what baptism is. Baptism is a sign. This is the way you are saved. And you stop at the sign and don't get to the event by which you are saved, you'll never get there. Baptism points us away from itself to the work of Christ on our behalf and the fact that He washes our sins away by His blood. And He does it through His crucifixion, through His resurrection, and through His ascension back into heaven. So the question is, why do we find this here? Why do we find Peter talking about this Right here in the middle of this letter he wrote. Well, remember the context. Who is he writing this letter to? He's writing to Christians who are being persecuted for their faith. And he's writing these words as an encouragement to them. To focus their minds and their hearts upon what really matters. That is the salvation they have through Christ. Remember we saw last week, the week before... If God be for me, what can man do to me or against me? That's the attitude of a gospel-focused, gospel-driven purpose. The ultimate encouragement that you and I can have when we face difficulty, hardship, even persecution because of our faith is that Christ is our Redeemer. And we trust in Christ alone for our salvation. And because of that salvation that we have through Christ, there's a sense in which it doesn't matter what people do to us. There's a great old hymn that says, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And that's what we find here. Our great hope is in Jesus. And that gives us confidence and security no matter what we face in life. You know, we've been talking about it Carrie mentioned it in Sunday school this morning. There are believers in parts of our world right now who are really suffering persecution. Folks, we don't know what it's like. Whose lives are in danger because of their faith. And when you're facing having your head cut off because you believe in Jesus, one thing to which you want to cling. The only thing to have, you have to which to cling is the promise that Jesus died for your sin. He was raised from the dead. He ascended to heaven over all power, all angels, and all of them. So, be encouraged this morning. Be encouraged because your faith is in Christ alone through His resurrection, through His crucifixion, and through His ascension. Be encouraged this morning because you know that you have a complete and full Savior who's paid the full price for your salvation. And be encouraged this morning because you have a Savior who not only 
died and rose again, who is now ascended in heaven at the seat of all authority, reigning and ruling on your behalf. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. We love it. We're thankful for it and pray that it might make an impression upon our hearts today that it might change our lives and make us more like Jesus. Help us to be encouraged today because of who he is and what he's done for us. We ask it all in his name. Amen.